Welcome to Aina Insights, where prominent leaders and influencers shaping the industrial and industrial technology sector discuss topics that are critical for executives, boards, and investors. Aina Insights is brought to you by Aina.ai, a firm focused on working with industrial companies to make them unrivaled segment of one leaders. To learn more about Aina.ai, please visit our website at www.aina.ai. Good morning. Welcome to a new episode of the Titanium Economy podcast series, where we talk with leading executives in the industrial technology ecosystem to explore a wide array of topics, including the macroeconomy, business strategy, technological and operational transformation, and their outlooks for the future. Today, we're delving into a unique perspective from the regulatory, public affairs, and legal world on the critical issues facing the U.S. energy industry. We're delighted to be joined by Mr. Neil Chatterjee, Senior Advisor at Hogan Lovells in Washington, D.C., Mr. Chatterjee is a former commissioner and chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, and has deep ties in Washington and across the industry, with extensive experience across the energy landscape, both domestically and internationally. While at FERC, Neil champions several strategic initiatives, including streamlining and improving FERC's liquefied natural gas application review and approval process, bolstering power grid reliability and resilience, and boosting renewable resources' ability to compete in regional power markets. He's also been a strong advocate for deploying new technologies to reduce carbon footprint and mitigate physical and cyber threats to our critical energy infrastructure. Neil, welcome to our podcast. We are super excited to have you and are looking forward to our discussion today, both on the energy economy and the transition. And if you don't mind, I'd like to start off with just talking about the energy economy more broadly. Could you just give us your take on what are the critical opportunities and challenges the market participants face in the energy industry today? And then as, as you look ahead, the next 10 to five, 15 years. Well, thank you again for, for having me. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Look, this is a really exciting time to be in, in energy. We are in the midst domestically here in the U.S. and globally of an exciting energy transition. The heavy emphasis is obviously on decarbonization and accelerating the deployment of clean energy technologies. But that comes with a whole host of opportunities, obstacles, and challenges. and this is something that policymakers, regulators, politicians, corporations, all stakeholders are having to contend with. How do we move forward with the energy transition? How do we achieve our decarbonization goals while maintaining reliability, ensuring that when you hit the switch, the lights come on, affordability, making sure that in the face of inflationary pressure in particular, but just economic growth writ large, that we keep energy affordable. And then a new development that I think has come much more into focus in the aftermath of Russia's horrific invasion of Ukraine is energy security and, and ensuring that no country, but particularly the U.S., puts themselves in a position to become energy vulnerable. So there's a lot to unpack there, but the bottom line is this is a really, really interesting and exciting time to be in the energy space. Thanks, Neil. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head on the several competing priorities, so as to speak, on in the energy world today. I think you've spoken about the importance of balancing both energy transition with infrastructure reliability and as recently now on affordability as well as security. 
How do you assess where we stand on these topics today and where we might need to go in terms of how we balance all four of these? Yeah, we've got a lot of work to do. And I think in the U.S. in particular, the, the challenges here have been crystallized in the past couple of years. What we've seen, particularly on the power side, is the grid has been tested. It's been pushed to the brink by extreme weather events. And you have two pretty significant examples in the past couple of years, one in California, one in Texas. California, a progressive state, Texas, a conservative one. Both of their grids were pushed to the brink by different events, wildfires and extreme heat in California, an unexpected cold weather event in Texas. And what those two examples showed was that climate change doesn't care about your politics and that the grid is going to increasingly be tested by climate change and these extreme weather events. But the reality is, in order to reduce emissions to contend with climate change, that is going to require the deployment of more weather-dependent resources. And therein lies the ultimate conundrum and where the difficulty in achieving that balance occurs. And where I have been particularly frustrated is, you know, we've seen situations arise where I think politicians are making decisions about things like resource adequacy in the generation mix, not engineers and experts. And I think there is where some of the challenges will come in the coming years. You've got certain plants that are being retired for political reasons before they're balancing resources, before their replacements are ready to go and are ready to be deployed. And that can lead to really dangerous situations where you might have to contemplate rolling blackouts or brownouts or electricity curtailments. So to the extent possible that we can get the politics out of this equation and allow the engineers and the economists and the lawyers to sort it out, I think we'll be positioned to get better outcomes. Thanks, Neil. I think you, you talked about, I mean, just in the, in the recent example as well, just the opportunity and challenges in the U.S. How would you assess the approach U.S. has taken versus some other countries outside the U.S. around the globe, both from a regulatory and a legal sense? Any learnings from that which we could, we could adapt to or incorporate? I actually think it's the other way around. One of the exciting things about my tenure at the U.S. Federal Energy Regulatory Commission was the opportunity I got to engage in the foreign policy arena. To be totally honest with you, when I first took my seat at FERC at a domestic economic market regulator, I didn't think that I'd have that many opportunities in the foreign policy space. And to the extent I did, maybe because FERC had the responsibility of evaluating applications for liquefied natural gas export facilities, maybe ensuring that there was a you know viable offtake and market for U.S. LNG exports. Maybe that would be my foray into, into the foreign policy arena. What I found very quickly was in the 21st century, no country is on an island anymore when it comes to energy. And our interests are interrelated. And FERC has the world's foremost expertise when it comes to the oversight of competitive wholesale electric markets. And what I was so interested to see is that our allies around the world wanted to learn from the U.S. example. And it's an interesting dichotomy because you talk to people at home and people complain about policy and infrastructure and, and the nature of energy policy in the U.S. But the reality is our grid, our markets are the envy of the world. And our allies wanted to learn how we've been able to maintain 
reliable, affordable delivery of electricity while squeezing carbon out of the power sector. And so they wanted to learn from us about our experience with capacity markets, with energy, with ancillary services. And it was a form of kind of soft diplomacy that I was really proud of, was, was meeting with our allies from India to Japan to Brazil and, and you know throughout Eastern Europe, Central Europe, and teaching them about the experiences we were having in the U.S. And so I, I think there's a lot to be proud of. Do we do everything perfect all the time? Of course not. Do we constantly need to make iterative changes to our processes? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a lot that we can share with our allies around the world. Thank you, Neil, for for that perspective. I think clearly a gap between perception and reality there. So thanks for bringing that to light. Moving to the the topic you raised around affordability, I think enough talk has we've seen about where the economy might be headed in the next few years. I think you already see inflation being at a, a significant high. And indicators showing slow economic growth. So what impact do you see on energy affordability? And what kind of path do you envision which might help a recovery out of this, both for us and, and globally? You know, I think, look, energy prices, you know, are, 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 are you know, kind of one of the leading indicators of, of inflation. We saw that. I mean, most Americans related inflation to the price at the pump. And so I think, you know, that kind of inflationary pressure is, is very visible through energy. We saw it, you know, for, for, for the better part of a year in our cars, and we're starting to see it in, in, in our homes, in our electricity bills, as, you know, inflationary pressure drives, you know, the cost of everything up. The key to me to restoring balance and bringing it down is to produce more American energy here at home, whether it's, you know, oil and gas or nuclear or, you know, supporting our existing nuclear fleet, accelerating the deployment of renewables. The more U.S. energy we have, the more, you know, we can increase supplies to meet demand, you know, we can relieve some of this inflationary pressure on Americans. But it's not easy. You know, at FERC, you know, my agency, we played a role in overseeing applications for gas infrastructure. And the reality is something that used to be a matter of routine has become very expensive. And siting pipelines has become a real challenge in this country. And you have certain regions of the country that were due to, you know, sort of a regulatory, you know, state opposition and bottlenecks. We can't get gas into New England and into other regions of the country. And that, you know, leads to questions about affordability and reliability. When it comes to renewables, we're faced with an interesting conundrum. I think one of the smart things that the Inflation Reduction Act did was invest in bringing the domestic supply chain for clean energy home. But that's going to, you know, lead to some cost increases in the short run. But we need to, you know, answer those moral questions. You know, do we want children mining cobalt? Do we want slave labor producing component parts for clean energy in China. We don't. And so we have to balance our decarbonization goals with these other, you know, human rights and, and moral questions. I do think economically and from an energy security standpoint, it is vitally important that we develop the domestic supply chain. But that may mean increased cost to renewables in the short term. Look, the price of renewables has dropped dramatically over the last decade. And I think there's a genuine business case to be made for clean energy today, particularly solar. And I think in the future, solar combined with storage. But we may have to go through some economic growing pains while we develop the supply chain to deliver that, you know, future energy. Thank you, Neil. I think that kind of highlights the just a good segue to our next topic around the role of the federal government in enabling both the transition, both in terms of an investor and a player. How would you describe 
the government's strategic priorities today. And then any commentary on how it kind of has a bearing on the private sector's investment and involvement in this transition? Yeah, it's been really challenging and frustrating, to be quite frank. I think the government is playing, much to my dismay, a bigger and bigger role in our lives, and particularly when it comes to energy and environmental policy. And what's been happening is, sadly, as energy and environmental policy has become polarized like everything else, the pendulum is radically swinging back and forth depending on who's in charge politically. And that makes it really, really difficult to make long-term investment decisions. You know, energy decisions aren't one or two-year decisions. These are five, 10, 30-year investments. And when you're trying to peg those investments to a rapidly changing political landscape, that can be maddening. And it wasn't always the case. When I first came to Washington in the 2000s, people voted what was underneath their feet or over their heads, you know, what their resources were. When I first came to the to the U.S. Senate, the chairman and the ranking member of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, one Republican, one Democrat, they were both from New Mexico. And as the Senate majority shifted back and forth, they handled handed the gavel to the committee back and forth. But the agenda of the committee didn't really change because they were doing what was in New Mexico's interest. And you had Republicans in the Northeast who had much more in common with Democrats than they did with Republicans in the South. And that really changed, I think, around the Obama era and to where now energy, climate change, environmental policies become really polarized. And for example, look at U.S. EPA. EPA went one direction under the Obama administration, a completely different direction under the Trump administration. And is now whipsawed back in an even further direction under the Biden administration. For stakeholders that have to come before EPA, that is an incredibly maddening environment to try and make a long-term investment decision. One of the reasons I was proud of my tenure at FERC is I feel like FERC can be a beacon of stability in an otherwise volatile regulatory landscape. What do I mean by that? You know, FERC is one, it's a multi-member board. There's not a single administrator. There's five commissioners. Two, FERC is bipartisan. You've got no more than three members from any one political party that can serve on the commission. And FERC is independent. And I think those are really critical because we don't want something as important as electricity to become politicized in this country. And so did FERC go in a different direction under my leadership than it did under my predecessors in the Obama administration? Sure. But it wasn't a dramatically different direction. Is FERC going under a different direction now under new leadership? Sure. But but for you know one pretty significant overstep on pipelines, generally the commission is not moving in that dramatically a different direction than it did under my leadership. And that's important because it provides that kind of regulatory certainty and stability that investors really need. Makes sense, Neil. Makes complete sense. Well, I think moving a little bit to the now the topic of the role of technology, I think in our book as well, The Titanium Economy, we talk about how industrial technology companies have been traditionally underappreciated, misunderstood, undervalued. But looking ahead, at least these companies can provide combined technology to be big enablers of energy transition and efficiency imperatives. I think you've also spoken about the power of bringing technology into the energy space. Could you elaborate on how you see technology not just catalyzing the energy transition, but also overall performance and reliability of our infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of you know exciting things that can result from innovation. And 
you know, we're seeing firsthand the benefits of that. I mentioned as the business case for clean energy continues to improve, innovation is driving a lot of that. And so I'm a big believer in innovation. Now, I, I, I personally, I don't prefer, you know, regulations or subsidies or mandates to drive innovation. I prefer markets and competition. And I believe competition leads to not just innovation, but also cost containment and cost discipline. And so that was kind of the central ethos during my tenure at FERC when it came to innovation. FERC didn't have a role to play in innovation. That's DOE. But what I wanted to do was ensure that you know market rules allowed for innovation to thrive. And a couple of the significant initiatives that I pursued were efforts to remove barriers to entry for energy storage and for aggregated distributed energy resource aggregators to be able to compete and to be compensated for all of their attributes for capacity, for energy, for ancillary services, with the belief being that if these resources were given the chance to compete, they would thrive and deliver benefits for consumers, for reliability, for affordability, and for the environment. And so that was sort of the approach that I took at the commission, allow markets and consumers to enable innovation to thrive. I think you touched on a very critical point, Daniel, in terms of role of regulation and the legal regime in terms of either enabling or, or impeding innovation. I think you spoke about it, your, your time at the commission. Any pointers around how the apparatus is working today? Where do you feel we are doing well in terms of supporting technology innovation and where potentially we could do better? I think just, you know, education, you know, one of the things I was proud of during my time at FERC is I, I tried to make FERC more accessible. There were many stakeholders who were, you know, admitted to me over the years that they were too intimidated to participate in FERC processes because their belief was that FERC was, you know, kind of dominated by regulatory lawyers and people steeped in, in energy regulatory experience. And that as technology was bringing new stakeholders to the forefront, these stakeholders weren't as familiar with the regulatory process. And so therefore, you know, they might be excluded from it. And I think on a going forward basis, to the extent that some of these, you know, innovative new players, you know, they need to be active in the regulatory space and ensure that their voices are heard, not just at the federal level, at the state level, at the RTO and ISO level. And so I think investing in education and making sure that policymakers, regulators, stakeholders across the spectrum understand the value proposition of innovative new technologies. I think that's really, really critical. Thank you, Neil. Neil, one topic I think you, you mentioned just a little while back around energy storage. I think a lot of talk goes to energy diversification and the transition, but I think more and more people are realizing given as renewables become more proportion of our energy consumption, energy storage will be a key element. So would love to get your thoughts on how you think that market is shaping up and in view of what we've seen, obviously, with supply chain disruptions and all, what is your outlook in the future for energy storage? You know, I'm very bullish on energy storage. I think it's, it's exciting. I think the FERC Order 841 that I pushed forward to enable energy storage access to the competitive wholesale markets will go a long way towards driving storage. I think storage is the answer to intermittency questions around renewable resources that could lead us to that clean energy future without having concerns about reliability, but we need that breakthrough to occur and it, in long duration storage. And it hasn't yet happened. And so we can't be Pollyannish about it as we proceed. I do believe the breakthrough will come, but until it does, we can't take our eyes off of reliability. But long term, I'm very excited about the future of storage. Got it, Neil. 
Neil, we'll move a little bit now to leverage learnings from your diverse experience. I think you're one of very few folks who've been at the top echelons of public policy and government operators as now recently in the private sector as well. I think a couple of topics would love to kind of get your opinions on. I think number one is, at least as we looked at the industrial technology landscape, we found that talent is a big, big barrier to be able to deliver or achieve the potential of this, which I think is pretty true in the energy sector as well, both if you look at the public policy side as well as the private sector side. So any learnings or any any pointers around how you felt we could attract the right type, type of talent to these kind of opportunities and make sure that it's well supported? Well, talent is not my strong suit because I don't have any. But in terms of what it will take, I, I think we're in the midst of a demographic transition in the energy space. A lot of senior leaders who have kind of provided the guidance to successive generations are starting to retire. And there's a gap that's emerging that needs desperately to be filled with smart and talented people. And I think we have to make work in the energy sector vital for those folks. Look, I can understand the temptation of wanting to go into finance and private equity and work on Wall Street. You know, those are very lucrative opportunities that I wouldn't begrudge anyone. But I will say that, you know, public service, particularly in the energy space, you know, real value, intrinsic value, that maybe the monetary compensation isn't what it is if you went to work in finance, but there were rewards in other ways. You know, I, I was very fulfilled by the work that I did throughout my my tenure in government. And so I try to make that case to everyone that, you know, if you have the opportunity, serve your country and work in this capacity, because we do need to attract that next generation of talent. And then I think diversity is a, is another piece of this. I was proud to be the first Indian American chair of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. We currently have the first African American chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission in Willie Phillips. I think that is very encouraging and is a sign that we are seeing more diverse talent come into the energy space. One of the things that is possibly you know, the most moving to me and, and really just it, it gives me total gratification about my time in government is whether it's on LinkedIn or Twitter or emails, I have had Indian kids from around the world, not just in the US, reach out to me blindly to say that because they saw someone that looked like them serving in this type of role, it inspired them to want to pursue a career in energy and in the public sector and in government. And that was really humbling to me, this idea that just my virtue of having had this job, and it was a visible one, that kids saw that and, and became inspired to think they could do the same. And that's a new thing, to be honest. When I was a kid, I always knew I wanted to serve my country and work in public service. I assumed I would always be a staffer. I never thought I would get an opportunity to be a principal because no one look, that looked like me was a principal. I'm very fortunate that I was able to attain that status in my career, and I'm truly humbled and grateful and hopeful that other kids maybe will, will see my example and think, well, if that guy can do it, I can do it too, and probably better than he did it. That's such a powerful example to share, Neil. Thank you so much, because we talk about diversity at at the highest levels, but I think it's it's good to see the specific examples and how it could actually change people's lives and, and mindsets. So thank you for sharing. So Neil, just finally, I think you are, as I mentioned, your career has given you exposure to public sector, public service as well as private sector. One notion which always comes up, particularly as you talk about energy, is that it requires a public-private sector partnership. And sometimes questions are raised whether you really can truly affect change in this kind of a setup. So given that your experience on both sides, 
any lessons from your experience around what does it take to really execute change in as we kind of think about folks and leaders in the ex- in the energy sector? Yeah, this is a really interesting you know realization that I've come to in the past you know year year and a half or so that I've been in the private sector. Prior to this, I've spent almost the totality of my career in government, and I used to be firmly in the camp that was bemoaning the revolving door between the public sector and the private sector. And the idea that, you know, both parties, you know, President Obama barred lobbyists from serving in his administration. President Trump talked about wanting to drain the swamp. And I was sympathetic to both of their messages, this idea that you shouldn't trade on your public service and, you know, bounce back and forth between government and the private sector. I have completely reevaluated my view of that, now getting to see things from the other side. Having been in government, and not seeing the considerations that come into play on the private sector side, there were definitely instances, whether, you know, when I was on Capitol Hill, evaluating why someone was lobbying a certain position a certain way, or when I was at FERC and evaluating the timing of a particular filing and when it came in. And I inferred what the stakeholders' motivations might have been for approaching these things in the manner in which they did without really understanding what went into it. And now I see that sometimes these people aren't stupid. They absolutely know what they're doing. They're experts, but they have to come in with the filing at this time because they're under pressure from investors or they've got a quarterly board meeting coming up or they need to show, you know, to do a capital raise of some movement or some progress. And I think having that understanding, seeing from the other side, whether it's minimizing legal risk or, you know, responding to external pressures, there are reasons that private stakeholders do what they do that I think are important for folks on the government side to understand and vice versa. I think some of the counsel and guidance I've been able to provide now in my new role in the private sector is insights into how decisions are made within government. I think there is a lack of visibility and understanding, particularly into a complex technical agency like FERC. How does FERC come about these decisions and what are the dynamics? And for me to be able to share that you know, with folks in the private sector, that makes for better applications, that makes for better filings and for a better process at FERC. And so I was totally wrong in thinking that that shifting back and forth from government to private sector was somehow a nefarious thing. I actually think it could make for better government and for more efficient private sector engagement with government. Awesome. Thank you so much, Neil, for sharing sharing that perspective with us. I think our viewers and listeners will benefit not just from your perspective and experience, but also your, your passion and energy for, no pun intended, the energy sector. So, Thank you so much for for your time today. We sincerely appreciate you sharing your thoughts and views with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Ina Insights. Please visit Ina.ai for more podcasts, publications, and events on developments shaping the industrial and industrial technology sector.